Hello, 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 and welcome back to Center Ed Teaching. Uh, last week we were talking about how to keep the kids talking in your classroom, and today, maybe picking up on that same thread, thinking about how can keep all kids talking and make all students involved in the classroom by taking a look at bilingual and bicultural education, the difference between the two, and what are practical steps that teachers can take to make uh, their classroom more hospitable to students who are learning English as a new language. Um, and so to do that, returning to the podcast to help me out is Jorge. Hello, um, <laughs> this is Jorge. I'm a student in Applied Linguistics at Teachers College, and I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I think the first thing to maybe jump into this is to pull out kind of what we mean by lingual education and what we're going to talk about, because uh, there, there's bilingual education at different levels. There's uh, the bilingual education that's starting saying, okay, the uh, student's native language is English, and they're going to learn another language to kind of expand their studies, and a student who's maybe first language is not English, and they'll be learning English as they go. So, I mean, that's kind of the bare bones difference, but I guess what is the conceptual difference between how those play out in schools? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Uh, well, we were talking earlier about like all these different models and how like uh, um, you might get easily confused uh, in ter- by these two terms. And the first thing that I would like to point out is that the bilingual and bicultural model ideally usually go together, mm-hmm. and the uh, and that's like the main difference when you think about all the um, other umbrella terms in, uh, for programs that have an additional language or a second or foreign language as part of the curriculum. And the bilingual and bicultural model assumes that both languages are equal in the sense that students at the end of uh, their studies should be biliterate. Uh, let's say if the program is a Spanish and English program, they will be literate in Spanish and in English. And the assumption as well is that throughout the course, it, uh, uh, as they learn Spanish and as they learn English, this would help uh, with the... the this would help each other, would help the learning of, um, of the other language. And um, like you said, there are other models uh, in which mostly those that are called bilinguals mm-hmm. um, that focus on learning an additional language, uh, but then the philosophy is different, and that, that's something that you need to be careful about because in a bilingual program, um, like you mentioned, if they're if it's English and they're trying to learn another language, it's sometimes uh, what you would consider to be an immersion program in the sense that they're exposed to both languages, but there's a dominant language in the place that they're living in, which, for example, in New York would be English, mm-hmm. and uh, the model that doesn't make assumptions about the home language, for example. Um, if, uh, and most of the times these are programs where mm-hmm. parents want their kids to learn a different language and be proficient in it, but uh, the assumption is not the same. This is sort of um, helping them acquire a, a different language, but it's not based on the assumption that it, they're both helping each other and, and it would vary depending on the program's policies. Yeah. So if I can paraphrase, because what I'm hearing you say is that it sounds like there's a difference maybe in the constructions mm-hmm. of the language. And, right. s- and so one of the differences is that 
in a bilingual education model that's maybe teaching English and French or English and Spanish, that mm-hmm. those languages are viewed as equivalent to each mm-hmm. other. There's not like one that's the dominant language and the exposure to both is going to lead to increased learning for mm-hmm. the student, whether in the native language and in the non-native language. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also that where the bilingual education is saying, okay, well, your native language is not English. Mm-hmm. So the goal is not necessarily proficiency in both and to grow both, but actually to increase your ability to speak English and perform in English. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then... I think you even went another layer, if I'm hearing you right, that the bicultural education um, takes like an even another level of saying, not only are we valuing these two languages as equivalent, but actually the cultural knowledges that are connected to these languages Mm -hmm. are equivalent. So when you're becoming biliterate, it's not just reading the written word, but reading the written word in context and understanding that culture and moving forward. Is that, is that a fair like paraphrase? Yeah, and uh, and again, this would we could say these are like three big approaches to or or constructions of what bilingual education might be, but uh, and so we have to be careful in terms of how the term is being used because it, it can be something as specific as the idea of philosophy of uh, equality across to, between those two languages, mm-hmm. or something very loose as in a program that has an additional or foreign or or foreign language as part of it, um, but it's not really building upon those beliefs. Yeah, and so I, I want to continue to probe this bilingual and bicultural idea um, and thinking about how are the approaches um, different. I mean, we've already said bilingual is kind of referring just to the language, and bicultural is creating a sense of um, heritage for like cultural learners. Right. Um, can you maybe dive into that a little bit more and give us... Um, some more coloring into like the differences between those two and how they operate. So, oh, well, like we mentioned earlier, ideally both come together, right? But when we think about policies, most programs, uh, uh, especially um, in public schools or uh, or where you have uh, student populations that have uh, or large ELL populations, <laughs> you have programs where they try to implement a focus uh, uh, or uh, in the native language of the students so that they can tra- uh, gradually transition into uh, English speaking instruction. And so the, the, merely by using the term bilingual, this is the understanding of focusing on the language and mm-hmm. looking at these two uh, counterparts of the uh, home language or their students, uh, L1, and the second language or, or, or uh, the target language, which is a term that is not ideal in bilingual yeah. <laughs> uh, in, uh, education. And um, so... on Not ideal, right? Because it's that idea of inequality, right. again, yes. that one language is inferior to the yes, other. Yes, exactly. And then again, that would be like a case for the looser use of this term in the sense of like bilingual as having two languages as opposed to having two languages that are equal. And, um, and when you think about bicultural education, you're adding that other layer mm-hmm. of um, the heritage culture, all those values, costumes, traditions that come along with the language. So you could even think about uh, history and um, a, a, a more comprehensive approach to understanding how the language is used. And even, for example, if you think about um, 
other subjects like literature mm-hmm. or uh, or so forth. It's a more comprehensive uh, approach. Yeah, so your Spanish class, for instance, mm-hmm. wouldn't be about conjugations and verb tenses only. It would also right. be about um, what is this cultural <coughs> piece that we're mm-hmm. reading? What goes into this to yes. understand that? <coughs> and uh, to contextualize that, it's also like clear that this has is a more holistic approach and it's sort of a reaction to the, op- uh, uh, to the opposite model in the sense that in the U.S., for example, most programs will try to get students to e- speak English as, much, uh, as fast as possible mm. and this often implies that uh, they will not pay attention to their home language and sometimes this results in attrition of the language or rejection of their home culture. Uh, and this is what the bicultural, uh, bilingual and bicultural model um, attempts to overcome. So like it, it, this was a reaction to these police, uh, policies which led to, uh, which hindered the development of or, or the enrichment of uh, these heritage learners by focusing on only the predominant or mm-hmm. the dominant language. Yeah, I want to focus on something that you had just said because I think it's really important for thinking about how these models of education operate currently in a lot of public schools. And you said, like, often there's a focus to get the non-English speaker to speak English mm-hmm. as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, that cuts out bicultural education. So mm-hmm. would you say, like, on a policy in a school level that you're more likely to see the bilingual as opposed to bicultural? Yeah, I mean, yes. Uh, uh, there are many other factors that go into this, too. Uh, there's the issue of resources, there's the issue of planning, there's the issue of um, really how would you cater to all your students if you're focusing on a certain culture, a certain, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as opposed, you know, like because most languages have speakers in, in different regions of the world. Like if you mm-hmm. think about Spanish, there's millions and millions of Spanish speakers from many different countries, and so how would you choose which aspect of the culture to focus on and what's going to be relevant for um, the student or the learners that you have in your school? So at the, poli- at the policy level, it's easier to implement it a model that focuses on the uh, linguistic aspect and not, mm-hmm. uh, um, at least from the uh, official, at the official level, in, mm-hmm. in, in talking about curricular goals and uh, objectives. I mean, so I guess following up on that, in your work, mm-hmm. have you mostly seen in schools, is it like a pull-out model mm-hmm. for um, English language learners or or what does that look like on the ground level? Because I think... You know, you were saying bicultural mm-hmm. and bilingual is kind of those two together is like what we hope for. But mm-hmm. as you also mentioned, there's restrictions on that, right? The ability to plan for if you have students who are speaking French as a native language, Spanish as a, friend, mm-hmm. a native language, and Portuguese, and mm-hmm. then you're trying to design this and the same thing culturally, which mm-hmm. maybe your uh, ENL population is Spanish speaking, but they come from Mexico, uh-huh. uh, the Dominican Republic, right, and all these yeah. other countries. So, so I get that, but I'm I'm curious, what what have you seen in your work that either has given you pause or that you've been like, hmm, this seems like an educational system that's maybe working. Um, well, something that to say <laughs> something that really works is, uh, I mean, I could not generalize to say like all the systems work to perfection. 
I would also have to say that even if the common term to use now is English as a new language, the mm -hmm. model really in most schools is the same model as English as a second language. Yeah. Because uh, there are many factors that go into this. Many schools have students from many different countries, many different language backgrounds. And so it becomes a lot more difficult, especially if uh, you have people who are not trained in bilingual and bicultural education uh, to implement that model. And so people re resort to the model of English as a second language where uh, English is the medium of instruction and the target language in the end. And in addition to this, in spite of, for example, the teacher's beliefs or the training, there's also external uh, pressure there's external pressure to uh, uh, certain aspects of accountability, for example. Mm. Uh, uh, the test, the standardized test that the students need to take. Um, a, a, in the case of New York, the, uh, the statewide exams, uh, I mean, all the regions, yes, exactly, like, their college entrance exams. And then NYS LAT uh, mm -hmm. is the language proficiency test that they have to take. and. Uh, in order for them to transition out of the uh, ESL program or the ENL programs. So the cultural aspect, let's say, is often undermined or is often taken as the last, uh, uh, as a minor issue aspect of uh, these models. I mean, because of all these other aspects that the language itself is needed for. And I mean, is there something lost in that by saying that because there's the tension to standardized tests because um, students are now in a school system that is predominantly conducted in English that unless there is that almost conversion, it's not even like a learning, but a conversion to English, they're not set up to succeed. I mean, I guess I'm curious what you would perceive to be the effects on students of this education. So, um, you know, like, it, it depends on the student's family and the student's community, because even though if someone, someone who specializes in bilingual and cultural education would argue that it's not the ideal model because you're thinking of something as you're favoring the dominant language and dominant culture when these students have a heritage, culture, and language. But at the same time, um, there are accelerated contexts, for example, in New York, there are large communities of people who come from the same country, mm -hmm. and uh, because of this, it's easy for them to uh, get to a certain level of com comfort where they don't need to speak English to function mm -hmm. in their own communities. For mm -hmm. example, in the Bronx, there's large communities of Spanish-speaking people where they can, I mean, they do help each other as that sense of community, but that is sometimes not helpful for language learner mm -hmm. in the sense that uh, they don't get exposure to English uh, 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 and that would not help them uh, develop the language skills. Uh, 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 as most people assume, like, by mm -hmm. just being here, you would learn, you would pick up the language. Yeah. So, it, how you implement the model depends on aspects like uh, on factors like that like what's like the lifestyle of your students are they being exposed to the language the English in this case or are they not and uh, is will that be helpful or not and in addition to that they ask the aspect well one of the aspects that we need to consider with our cultural education is that 
literacy in their homeland, I mean, their L1 will help development of the L2, right? And ideally help the literacy skills as well. But sometimes, when you, especially when you think about students who have had interrupted education, they have not developed literacy skills in their first language. And so... Can you just say a little bit more about interrupted education in case someone has heard that phrase and doesn't know what it means? Right. So sometimes students are not able to go to school for a certain period of time, either for family reasons, sickness, or uh, sometimes their countries have political uh, conflicts. So, um, so they have missed a certain uh, uh, amount of years or, uh, or months of formal education. And so this has an impact on their literacy levels and in their L1, and therefore this gap already hinders them from like that, um, like this L1 being helpful to develop their L2. Uh, so that's another thing that we need to consider in the sense that... Can I just pause you that uh -huh. for a sec? Because I want to make sure I understood what you're saying. And what you're saying is that sometimes the gap in a uh -huh. student's native language, if it's not English, mm -hmm. it can be even more difficult for them to start to learn English because they don't have that own necessarily proficiency or yes. command of their native right. language to then understand mm -hmm. what they're learning in English. Right, especially when you think about junior high, stu junior high school students or high, high school students, because a lot of the efforts on, or like uh, formal bilingual and cultural models focus on early childhood education or, 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 or are implemented at that level. Mm -hmm. But when you think about how these models might be either successful or may fail to succeed in, 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 with all the populations, this is an important factor because uh, when there's this gap and which might not be the same with all students, mm -hmm. you already have this deficiency which is going to be problematic in the sense that you have a certain set of um, assumptions on their language levels, especially for their own language. But if you're in addition to um, teaching in, in the second language, or um, you, you need to overcome this gap, mm -hmm. then this, um, this makes the issue a lot more convoluted. Yeah, I mean, so I, I guess I'm just kind of reeling from what you're saying, because I thought I had a fair understanding of bilingual and bicultural education, but you're putting in these other factors, such as how the proficiency of a student in their native language can impact um, their ability to learn English. And I mean, we've already talked a little bit about, for the most part, on a school level, you see mm -hmm. kind of an accelerated focus on uh, English language proficiency for mm -hmm. a multitude of reasons. And so are, if there's an individual teacher who's listening to this right now and saying, well, I hear what you're saying about bilingual and bicultural education in the mm -hmm. classroom. We don't ha we're not fully resourced to do this. What can I do in the immediate to better help my students learn and grow? Mm -hmm. um, do you have any tips or thoughts? I mean, yeah, there's, uh, I mean, there's a couple things that to clarify before we do that in the sense that... Um, the success of a bilingual agricultural program depends of, uh, a, a lot on the structure of, of the program itself. So if you don't have this model in your school, uh, it, it, is, it would be more complicated to, to mm -hmm. set on um, large goals in, in the sense of like developing both uh, literacies or both languages. Now, you need to analyze the resources that you have and what your students are exposed to and also the model you're following because if you if you want to follow a bilingual model, this implies that you need to communicate with t 
teachers, for example, from the content area, and you would have to have teachers who are proficient in that other language in addition mm -hmm. to English that is going to be part of the bilingual uh, model. And so there's ne there needs to be communication in, in the sense of like what uh, what language are we going to be using in, in for example during content uh, area what do, how much would you uh, allow for uh, a change or, or code switching between English and that second language uh, and uh, and how are you going to will you for example implement conversation clause for students who need to develop. Uh, well, or for example, what's a conversation club? Uh, for example, it could be an after-school program where you just invite students to practice their speaking skills, mm. uh, and, and this is something that's very common in the sense of like English as a second language or English as a new language. Mm -hmm. But it's something. But again, it depends on whether you have students who are really proficient in just one language and need to develop mm. another one. Uh, and you could do the same for students who are, for example, native English speakers and need to practice their proficiency in that other language. The point is, you need to really establish a system in, uh, to see how things might work for each set of students. And also, do you actually have those two populations or do you only have a popula one population mm -hmm. of students? Because something that you see a lot in school is that you tend to get students who come from similar backgrounds mm -hmm. And then, uh, uh, in a way, they isolate. I mean, each group ends up being sort of isolated, yeah. and so that's something that you need to consider as well. Are you departing from a more where like you have both English speakers and speakers of uh, this second language that mm -hmm. you want in the model, or do you only have one of those populations? Because that will determine whether how you're going to be working or pairing students or implementing these um, policies. Yeah. So I mean, maybe it's a little bit selfish, but I'm reflecting right now on this experience that I had as a teacher where the school that I was at kind of had like a homework detention system and so if you didn't complete your homework the mm -hmm. idea was you'd stay after school for a half hour 45 minutes to complete the next day's um, homework and so I was supervising this one day one student and raises his hand to come have me talk to a student who had just entered the school uh, two weeks ago who mm -hmm. had immigrated from uh, Mexico mm -hmm. And the other student was explaining to me that he didn't know what his math homework was asking him mm -hmm. to do. And so, like, he couldn't do it. So he was just kind of sitting there. And so in my broken Spanish, mm -hmm. I tried to explain to him what the math assignment was asking him to do. And the second he realized what he was supposed to do, it was like something clicked. And mm -hmm. he was just able to complete the assignment, no problem. Mm -hmm. So that's in a math class where maybe language isn't necessarily at the forefront. So if someone who is maybe teaching a math class is looking to do this, does this mean you have directions written in Spanish? Um, that you have like a vocabulary translation on the side? I mean, what would be the way to handle that? Especially something like that where that's presumably independent work, mm -hmm. um, where the student won't have the teacher for support. Right. I mean... What you mentioned is very important, and even if you're not following a bilingual model, if you mm -hmm. have students whose first language is not English, and in particular if you have a large amount of students who have a similar uh, linguistic background, mm -hmm. do, having that linguistic scaffolding is very important because instructions is like where everything starts to fall apart <laughs> yeah. for, for, uh, for new students in particular. The, um, because whether you think of one new student in, in, in a group, that issue is easier because you can pair them with other students and like help them, uh, have them help them. 
throughout uh, the class, but if you have large amounts of students, and especially certain schools have a large turnover and they keep getting new students in the mm -hmm. middle of the school year and there's no way you can control that. Um, so having the instructions in their first language, if it's within your ability, is something that is definitely a good practice, especially for new students. Mm -hmm. Where, how you want to do that throughout the course depends on the model that you're following. Because um, there are schools, for example, that have a bilingual model and that have content area subjects that are taught in, in, uh, in a language different than English. And um, then depending on the model they're using, they might do either like the whole class in, uh, in the second language or, or, or in the other language, mm -hmm. or uh, they might just have certain groupings of students who m might provide help to each other, or they might provide just instructions or, or, or uh, use linguistic scaffolding for that, uh, for that reason. So it really depends on their resources and the systems that you have implemented at school because another aspect that has to do with that is like as a teacher are you proficient enough or, or confident enough to provide that support right mm -hmm. because if you're not definitely you should try to reach out for help and try to see what how other teachers for example might be working with it or even if you reach out to administration but um because that's another i mean yeah there are so many issues that have to do with your preparation and whether you have the resources at school to that may provide that support. So, I mean, it sounds like kind of your advice is boiling down to taking stock of what the situation is yeah. and what your students need and then thinking what can you do to prepare for mm -hmm. that class yes. and what things you can't do, mm -hmm. reaching out to others who can do that. And so I guess one of my questions is when you're reaching out to other people, would students who maybe have a similar linguistic background but are now more proficient in English, would those be resources that you would want to tap if there aren't other teachers that are um, as proficient in that mm -hmm. foreign language, whatever that is? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, and that's something that uh, you can try to do for sure. Again, you need to evaluate whether uh, that pairing actually works in the sense that you need to follow up with them and see if they're actually collaborating or they're helping one another uh, and especially guiding in a way or because you don't want that senior student to end up doing all the work for the mm. new student because and there's no benefit uh, <clears throat> in doing that so it there's no universal answer you just sometimes it's trial and error you need to see what uh, what system, what practice works best for your current class. Uh, but like, <laughs> the one thing that, that I do want to point out is that uh, I think that a takeaway from looking at the bilingual and bicultural approach to education is that there's no harm in using the student's uh, home language or native mm -hmm. language. It's usually helpful and it uh, definitely can help, uh, can be uh, an important support. Just like, <clears throat> just think about especially thinking about students who come to the United States uh, to continue their education here, how like this environment, language, culture, everything is strange for most of them. And mm -hmm. so building these bridges in the sense of like even a familiar set of instructions uh, in the class can really help them uh, transition better. 
to this little space. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I, Jorge, I, I thank you so much. I think this has been incredibly informative. And it feels overwhelming as a teacher thinking about how many layers there are to this, and especially a teacher at a school that maybe is not significantly well resourced. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I mean the task is gigantic, <laughs> and like because you can think about the language teacher on one hand, but you also think about the content area teachers and like how like they often, they, they don't always get any training at all in, in how they might deal with English language learners. But an important aspect there is also to think that it's a, a, it's a collaborative effort. You cannot assume that they're only going to learn language in, mm -hmm. their, uh, in their language art classes. There, there needs to be communication across all teachers, I mean, across all teachers' teams, so that, uh, because for a language learner in particular, uh, you acquire it in all classes and you need uh, to understand content in all classes but to really uh, make progress there's sometimes you will need those explanations even if you're learning about history or social studies mm -hmm. all right well you've drawn a <laughs> tall order but I guess it's a good reminder that it takes a village and people can collaborate together uh, thanks for joining us Jorge and we'll talk oh, to man. you all in the uh, ether space next week yeah, bye <laughs>